Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, November 21st, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Deb Lavender. Now, Deb was a member of the Missouri House of Representatives from 2015 to earlier this year, 2021. She represented the 90th district, which covers the south, uh, southwestern, yeah, southwestern part of St. Louis County, Missouri, which uh, includes the Kirkwood and surrounding areas. And all throughout her tenure in the House of Representatives and right up to the present moment, she runs her own business, an outpatient physical therapy clinic. Last year, she ran for a state senator position, and although it was a good and very competitive, tough race, uh, she was unsuccessful in securing that post, but we'll talk a little bit more about her ambitions later on. While in the House of Representatives, Deb sponsored a number of bills on health care, firearms, and finance. Her priorities include the expansion of Medicaid, protecting women's reproductive freedom, and strengthening our public schools. She's here today to discuss a range of interesting topics, including the animosity that plagues politics today, causing a rush to the extremes in political perspectives. We'll also discuss the push for parties to remain in power through gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the possibility of voter nullification. And we'll talk about the ways that politics plays out in the local scene. We've already seen inflamed emotions showing up at school board meetings and outrage over COVID mitigation strategies like mask mandates. And finally, we'll touch upon the, uh, we'll talk about the recently signed infrastructure bill and how that affects states and local communities. So Deb Lavender, thanks for joining us today at Democracy on the Move. It's nice to have you here. Dan, thanks for having me. I enjoy uh, working with you and being on your podcast today. Good. You know, um, let's get to, let's calibrate ourselves to the current political situation in Missouri here and just going to run through some numbers here. At this moment, we currently see a vast majority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. Uh, the House has 163 seats, 112 of which belong to Republicans, uh, 49 belong to Democrats. There's two that are currently vacant. So that gives the Republicans about a 69 percent majority in the House. The Senate is a similar story. It uh, contains 34 seats. 24 of them are Republican and 10 are uh, in Democratic hands. So that gives the Republicans about a 70 percent majority. So it's kind of a you know a super majority in both the House and the Senate. And plus the Republican or the, the governor is a Republican as well. So that gives the Republicans a trifecta here in Missouri. Now, it's interesting to go back in history. I looked at uh, some of the history of, of Missouri Senate and House. Back in 1992, it was pretty much the opposite. Democrats seemed to be in firm control. The pendulum started swinging, and around the year 2002, it swung into the uh, Republican territory, swung quite deeply into the Republican territory. So just curious about your opinion. Uh, why was there such a dramatic change over the last 30 years? I'm not sure I have the answer. I know there's a lot of people who will speculate on that. Uh, some of the reasons I think are Missouri, you know, historically was a slave state. Mm -hmm. And I think we have gone the same path as the Southern Democrats. If you recall, Lincoln was a Republican. I'm going to say from the North, Democrats were from the South. And then historically, we've just seen a true change of coats. The Democrats from the South in the 1850s are now our Republicans of the South. 
I think Missouri really had a lot of that same tendency and it took us until about, as you're saying, late 1990s, 2000, mm -hmm. to be able to see more of that switch. I certainly think conversations about gun rights, abortion rights, uh, gerrymandering has certainly done a lot for the change in the state. And then also the conversations about our LGBT communities, the identity politics. I think those are a lot of the topics that have specifically pushed rural voters to vote more Republican mm -hmm. than voting Democrat. So is it, um, do you think it's also like a rural versus urban thing going on there too? Because the urban areas seem to have stuck, uh, stayed blue for the most part, right? Um, in Missouri, here we see Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbia, pretty much blue. And it's that story in just about every state throughout the heartland here. Um, the, the rural areas go red and the urban areas go blue. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And it's not just here in Missouri, but it's nationwide. If you look at our states that are Republican-led, whether it's in our U.S. Congress, whether it's in their state houses, whether it's in their state governorship, I think you'll find the more rural states are Republican these days and the more urban states are the Democrat states. So we're seeing that trend across the nation over the last several decades. And that's kind of fascinating to me. We we have uh, we had on this show some time ago was uh, Ann Nelson, and uh, she wrote a book about uh, many it covers this topic among many other things. And um, now I forgot the name of the book. Um, I'll, it'll come to me later on because every time I go on the air, my my mind goes blank. But anyway, she was on the podcast uh, about a year ago, and she talked about the the rural areas being penetrated on purpose by the Republicans in the sense that they took over a lot of the airwaves, the AM bandwidth airwaves. Mm -hmm. They took over a lot of the uh, uh, messaging coming directly from the churches. And so uh, when you're in a rural area, you really don't have that much access to anything other than what is being brought to you by primarily Republican-backed uh, uh, sources. And including newspapers as well. So uh, it seems like that that was a fairly slow thing that happened over a long period of time. It's kind of amazing to me that the Democrats didn't see this happening, or maybe they saw it happening and didn't know what to do about it. But it is kind of interesting because I find, and you've probably talked or heard of the people at at, uh, at the Heartland Pod, they, there is still a significant amount of progressives in the rural areas, but they're almost like you know, driven underground. It's a secret society or something like that out there. There's a lot of progressive areas, a lot of progressive ideas out there, but I guess it just doesn't take hold, does it? Well, I agree with you. I recently traveled um, down towards our Springfield area, and I didn't get too far out of St. Louis before the only stations or the majority of stations I were, was able to get were Christian radio stations. One pontificating about the only path to heaven was through Jesus Christ, and this was why. And I think you're absolutely correct. And some of that goes back to the uh, Fairness Act. That Fairness Doctrine. Reagan, yes, that Reagan uh, vetoed. I believe that was in 1983 that um, if you had a license, you had to represent fair opinion. Uh, certainly Rush Limbaugh, our own Missourian, uh, very much took advantage of that 
and was able to say whatever he wanted to say. Why the Democrats haven't been able to match that, I'm not sure, but I do think that is a tremendous reason why, if you live in rural uh, the United States, you're hearing to an awful lot of that right Republican um, messaging continuously on your radio stations. Yeah, yeah. I just read an article the, the other day that in St. Louis here, there are now four FM radio stations that are dedicated to conservative talk radio. And I brought this concern up to uh, some of the other Democrats I talked to and said, what are you guys doing about this? Because it's, you know, FM to begin with, this is a shorter, you know, shorter range on FM radio. But the fact that now, you know, the urban areas listen to a lot of FM because it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's more prevalent and it's higher quality uh, fidelity. And yet it's a lot of it's becoming um, taken over by a lot of conservative talk radio as well. So um, this is a continuing thing going on. Yes. And it is something that the Democrats will need to look at very seriously to be able to introduce different conversations into that mix. Yeah. By the way, the name of that book was called Shadow Network from Ann Nelson. So just as we're talking about it, then ding, it hit my head. Yeah. Um, so along the same lines, you know, I'm, I'm looking at what's going on, not just in the rural versus versus urban areas, but it has become very vitriolic lately. We're tearing ourselves apart. And, I, you know, we can talk about Missouri, but I think Missouri actually is, is kind of a, a litmus for the rest of the country as well, particularly in the heartland here. And I don't know what's going on. Why, why are we tearing ourselves apart? Why is it? It's one thing to have a different opinion, right? But it's another thing to vilify each other and and go after each other and make judgmental statements like, you're not American enough. You need to leave yeah. and go to Canada or something like that. Mm -hmm. What What's behind all this? You know, those are good questions, and I don't have the answer. In my uh, recollection, I point towards Newt Gingrich back in the 90s as being somebody who started this partisan politics that I have the answer, and if you don't agree with me, then I'm not going to support you. And started driving some of that wedge back into the US Congress back in the early 90s. We've seen nothing but that exacerbate through time. And then of course, most of us will recognize that Donald Trump in the presidency uh, with his insults to people on a daily basis, certainly brought it down to a, I don't like you, or I don't like your policies, therefore I don't like you, and because I don't like you, I'm okay to insult you. And so we just have gone down that rabbit hole these last five, six years now. I think the perfect example is after the Republicans in the House voted for the infrastructure bill, Marjorie Taylor Greene puts their names and phone numbers up on her Twitter feed and yeah. calls them traitors to the Republican Party. Yeah. And so now it's no longer about do you represent the people of your district? It's whether or not you are loyal to your party. And I'm not quite sure why that loyalty has suddenly taken precedence over serving the people of the nation in the best way that we can. What do you think about corruption? I mean, last week, 
We we talked to Tim Shepard, who's running for U.S. Senate. He's gunning for one of Roy Blunt's seats, or one of his only seat, not one of his seats. And uh, he said, and I quote, he said, we don't have a moderate versus progressive problem or a Republican versus Democrat problem. We have a corruption problem. Do you think the corruption might be behind some of this uh, vitriol that's going on? I worry that some of it is, especially here in Missouri. Over the last several years, um, Parson has given contracts to out-of-state organizations that are no big contracts of 10 and 20 and $50 million. I worry about the corruption that may be involved in that. The number of ex-legislators that are in Parson's realm is pretty substantial mm-hmm. and not not necessarily of his cabinet, but director uh, positions, um, just various positions throughout his administration that all seem to have Republican um, ex-legislators. And I worry that there's some corruption in how they're chosen, how they serve. We don't have to get into, but the whole medical marijuana licensing process the company Parsons administration chose to determine who received those licenses was recently fined $28 million for the corruption in how those licenses were distributed. Wow. So awful lot of money involved in what happens in government. It is having been on our budget committee. It's very, very challenging to track every single dollar that's spent. And then when we have no bid contracts, which the governor has signed several of them these this last year during the COVID uh, pandemic, it's hard to assess, is that the best way Missouri taxpayer dollars should be spent? And so I do worry that there's an awful lot of corruption that happens, uh, some incompetence that happens. It's very difficult to manage all that needs to be managed uh, in our state, let alone in the nation. Yeah, that's um, that's a good point. And, and when you say Parson, that's the that's the Missouri Missouri Governor Mike Parson. Um, yeah, I remember. You probably remember this. There was a there was an allegation recently that someone in the St. Louis Post Dispatch had um, hacked into the DESE site, which is our educational, uh, I don't remember what DESE stands for anymore, but it was our education site run by the, by the, gov- by the uh, Missouri state government. And um, reality, what happened is the guy just basically right-clicked and looked at the HTML standing behind it and saw a whole bunch of social security numbers of teachers out there. And um, so it, what, I, what I found very interesting about that is that Rather than Mike Parsons saying, oh, I'm sorry, we'll fix this right away and we'll make it right with the teachers, he accused the Post of hacking in to the, uh, to the website. And on top of that, he said, it's going to cost $50 million to have this fixed. And I could just see him like rubbing his hands in the background saying, oh, yeah, now another no-bid contract for my buddies to go out and just debug uh, some HTML code, which anybody can look at by right-clicking <laughs> on their website. Yes, I know. And, and the, the swiftness that he came out, I have to think in the end, he was embarrassed that Desi, it's a department of elementary and secondary education that the state had been embarrassed by what 
we had available for people to see. So I have to think that it was that type of move that had him accuse the reporter of hacking our system. And originally it was 100,000 teachers who we thought information was out. Dan, it was actually 620,000 social security numbers of former and current teachers that were made available. And I agree with you, there was a, a threat of this costing us $50 million with an existing contract that the state has, they're looking at $800,000 to offer all of these teachers a year of credit history checking to make sure indeed that our identity hasn't been stolen. But it was just very poor on the part of our government the governor that the first thing he did was accuse the reporter who in all good faith was trying to point out to the state of Missouri that they had a major issue on their hand and they should fix it. Not only that, they sat on the story for 24 hours to give the state a chance to cover up all those social security numbers before they revealed it to the public. But yes. um, I'm kind of a gearhead myself. I've been doing a lot of internet work for many, many years. And um, I got to tell you, eh, don't worry about it. Those social security numbers are confidently in Russia's hands at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those guys. Uh, I can set up a yeah. website that doesn't have any that doesn't have any filters on it, and literally in a, in just in just one minute, I'll see two or three people trying to get into this thing and look at it. Wow! And they're, they're not just looking at the HT, at, at web pages; they're actually looking at the code behind the web pages. You can just see it right on your computer. So, yes, those yeah. those social security numbers are definitely compromised, and they should definitely get the. Uh, the uh, the coverage from uh, from credit companies or whatever it is they need. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So let me see. Let's talk about power. That was one of the issues I wanted to bring up here. And political power is something that that I guess we talk about. We always com com conflate the words politics and power together, but it's not necessarily so. Politics should be about the privilege of representing people. And representing mm -hmm. the people's interests and not about the power and what's the reason why it it sort of uh tweaks my mind is when i was watching the uh, lindsey graham when he was um at the kavanaugh hearings he got very upset with the democrats he turned to him and raised his finger and said i hope you never get the power that you want and and i thought to myself what is it with power? It's, it's all about getting power and it's not about representing the people's interests. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it makes total sense to see that uh, there's a lot of gerrymandering going on. Uh, mm -hmm. Our voting rights are under attack. And I think even worse than our voting rights being under attack, and this is something I want to talk about a little bit more, is what I would call voter nullification. And just to paraphrase an article I saw in the in this in this website called statesunitedemocracy.org, they cited all the different ways in which state legislatures today are passing laws that allow them to directly interfere in state election processes, including the possibility of levying levying criminal charges against election officials that are deemed to somehow have violated a vague set of practices. And these practices are normally used to, um, you know, mitigate certain situations like, let's say you have a power outage or natural disaster or something or some other emergency situation. You know, your local election authorities will start making some rules on the spot to, you know, hold the polls open longer or whatever. Um, 
They cited in this uh, article I was reading uh, in Arizona, House Bill 2800 would require the legislature to come into special session after each election and potentially overturn the result. Now, to me, this is very shocking because it's, it's even more shocking than just simple voter suppression. Effectively, what we're looking at here is that state legislatures are attempting to nullify votes of their constituents. And, you know, we've got some pretty radical members here in Missouri. I don't mind calling them out by name. Rick Bratton, who's, who's well-known nationally because he proposed the ability. Uh, he, I, he, he, I don't think the bill went through, but he put on one of his bills um, what I would call the runover protester bill, which says if you're protesting and if you step into the street, people can run over you. <laughs> they, they, can, they can hurt you. And I'm like, what? To me, that's murder. But you, know, you got other people like, you know, uh, Nick Schroer and Dr. Bob Onder. I mean, I don't want these guys putting their thumb on the scale at all. And what they're attempting to do now is throw the scale away completely and doing mm-hmm. so with impunity. So these, so I know it's kind of a long rambling question here, but um, what is your opinion about power versus, versus the privilege of representing people? Well, I first want to agree with you. It's atrocious that we think state legislators know better than the people on how they voted. There's certainly in Missouri, our secretary of state has touted what a terrific election that we had, no fraud happening. And secretary of states across the nation have said that in this last year from the election that happened in November of 2020. I think what it's come down to is I want my way I want my way no matter what. I want my way even if I'm in the minority having that opinion. So I'm finding that Republicans, even when they lose, are crybabies about it. They didn't get their way. They've lost. So now they have to rig the rules so that doesn't happen again. Yeah. Listen, as a legislator, I'm pretty opinionated. I, if, if you gave me the wand and you said, how would you like it to be? I would like people to have access to health care. I'd like all of our education to be good for all of our students across the state of Missouri. I'd like our tax dollars to be used well and for the people in the areas where they need support and encouragement. So we all have our opinions, but politics used to be about compromise. I come to the table with what I think is appropriate. You come to the table with what you think is appropriate. We throw out what we can live without. Mm-hmm. We keep our thought, our, our minds focused on the things that are so important to us. And then we compromise. But we haven't been compromising as legislatures for a long time. And you've also brought up gerrymandering. I saw um, an example again today of how with a three-fifths majority of one party or the other, those lines can truly be drawn that the minority wins a majority of the districts. And it just depends on how you draw the line and how you go say Democrats all together, how you bundle Republicans all together. And even in a minority situation, you can create districts that those minorities win the majority of the districts. Yeah. And that's what we've been doing. 2010, 
We saw gerrymandering across this nation that we were still at the effects of. And now in 2020, uh, Republican states seem to be doubling down to make sure they gather up even more of the districts in Republican hands. And just so I don't offend your listeners, yes, this happens in Democrat states too. We see our neighbor, Illinois, is looking to see if they can't pick up another one or two Democrat seats in their state. But the whole game right now is can we rig elections in 2022 for the Republicans to either take control of the House of Representatives or for the Democrats to hold on to it? Here in Missouri, they're trying to do the same thing in our House and Senate. Yeah. So that really, in my opinion, we, we talk about the, the For the People Act, which um, in some ways, I suppose, is, is intended to undo some of this damage that gerrymandering does. And that is something you don't necessarily want to see go through. But I think that at this point, our government and right now it's our, our federal government's run by a majority of Democrats they're kind of being backed into a corner on this, aren't they? Because uh, we're going to have a, a rule by the minority pretty soon if something doesn't happen like the For the People Act. But there's a big barrier in front of the For the People Act called the filibuster. So yes. uh, have you looked at the For the People Act? And have you, are you are you familiar with this topic at all? Enough, yes, to know that we want to have voting rights uh, consistent across the nation. You're right, at this moment, because of the filibuster, the 50 Republican senators who represent 40 million fewer people than the 50 Democrat senators will be able to block the For the People Act, the John Lewis Act, unless the Democrats alter the filibuster rules in the U.S. Senate. And I appreciate that. We don't want to just throw out all precedents, but I do think we have to look at how the minority rule is preventing the majority of Americans from feeling truly represented in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. Yeah, they, I've heard some interesting variations of the uh, of the filibuster rule. Some people say get rid of it altogether, but one of the more interesting things I've heard was um, maintain the filibuster, but just make sure that I don't know if it's like sixty percent of the people have to remain in the chamber during the filibuster. So um, that really makes it more painful, and so mm-hmm. people reserve it for the most you know egregious things, I suppose. Um, you know, and what I find interesting too is that, is that it's not even so much that a filibuster even takes place. It's just the threat of the filibuster. So yes. the Democrats are afraid to move. They'll say, "Well, the Republicans are going to filibuster us." And I'm like, "Well, call them out their bluff and see if you can get you know Ted Cruz to stand up there and read Dr. Seuss for a while or something like that." Well, recently Chuck Schumer has been calling them on it, but it is a procedural vote, mm-hmm. and the procedural vote is as simple as. Do you want to allow this bill to proceed to the chamber floor for debate? And they have to have 60 votes for that measure to pass for the bill to be debated on the floor. 
Mm. And so it isn't just a matter of, and, and yes, some people have advocated, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. If you want to filibuster, stand up and filibuster. In Missouri Senate, that's what needs to be done to filibuster. If you have five people who don't want something to pass, they can talk to each other and pass the baton, so to speak, from one person to the next to hold the floor for as long as they're able to or until there's additional compromise on what it is you may be filibustering against. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, changing those rules for the U.S. Senate, you want to filibuster, that's terrific. Stand up and tell me why you don't like this bill and go ahead and hold that floor until compromise is reached that then 60 or more people will vote on the bill. Yeah. Wow. So um, you mentioned education a little while ago, and we've seen a lot of parents just all fired up going into their local school boards and demanding to be heard. And you know, don't get me wrong. I, I like the idea of parents showing up and getting involved and maybe, you know, giving speeches themselves that, that might some people might find offensive. But, um, you know, what it's gone beyond that, though. There's there's threatening members of the board. Um, there is, you know, physical threats. There's there's threats through emails and phone calls. That's going too far, in my opinion, that that's that goes way beyond participation. So getting back to education itself, though, what, do you think there's some sort of hidden agenda behind this move in in, in education? I know that the, the the one that the thing that comes up to the top is critical race theory. That's what the that's what the vehicle is for talking about stuff. But behind it, there's something else going on. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You certainly have to wonder if there's not a hidden agenda for the last at least six years in the state legislature here in Missouri. Some Republicans have wanted to expand charter schools, mm -hmm. charter schools, find a sponsor to sponsor a new school district that when they do that, they are able to receive 90% of tuitions out for every student that comes in, 90% of what we would give to the public school in the same area. So for every charter school, you have somebody who is a profit center. 50% of the charter schools that are started in Missouri fail because of finances. So they find out it's not that easy to teach children on the limited budget that Missouri gives to education. Recently, this past session, there was a bill that passed by, I believe, one vote in the House that we're going to take $25 million of tax dollars and put towards use for school vouchers. Yeah. And so now we're stripping $25 million from public education in Missouri from taxpayer dollars. I've been hearing some of the people who are going to the school boards. Uh, yes, everyone should always have the right to express their opinion, whether it's the school board, the St. Louis County uh, uh, Council, your local municipality, or in front of your legislature. But we have gotten where the threats the poor behavior. I have watched council meetings here in St. Louis where people yell at elected officials for three minutes. And it just feels incredibly disrespectful to me. 
Critical race theory has just been brought out and poured gasoline on the fire that has exploded. Uh, the fact that we're back to talking about not just banning books, but an elected school board member truly said, let's just burn them all. Yeah. And for many of us, that brings images of Hitler. Uh, there was a large pile of books out in front of one of his residences or government buildings, and they were burning books. Yeah. And so how that doesn't catch us all with concern is, is intriguing to me. If you don't want your child to read a book, then you shouldn't let your child read that book. Yeah. But to ask that it be banned from public education, I think it's just down a road We've actually been down a couple of times before in our past with never a good end in sight. And we need to kind of roll back the rhetoric. If you don't like public education, take your child and put them in private education. But a pillar of our society and our democracy is access to public education. And we've not done a good job with uh, funding that for decades, especially here in Missouri. Yeah, there was, um, I, I don't know if you, on Twitter that often, I get up there and, and just look at it to, and to take a few minute break and see what's going on. And today I saw a, a tweet from Mary Elizabeth Coleman, and she's the Missouri State Representative for, the, I think, the 97th District, which is where I live, actually. So I kind of watch what she's saying. And she she talks about the, quote, failing public schools. And my comeback to her was, look, they're only failing because you guys are underfunding them. And the more you underfund them, the more they fail. Now you, now you call them failing. So that opens up the door for this, what I would call a shell game, because they're, yeah. they're intentionally um, sabotaging the schools. And, they, and the only thing I can think of, and I, 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 it's just my thought right now that, that this is being done on purpose so that we can push the idea of having um, the, um, the charter schools and, and, and funding of private schools. And speaking of which, I did some math on that recently. And uh, again, I'm going to go from the top of my head here because I'm just don't remember exact numbers, but there's some 120,000 students in Missouri that are currently enrolled in private schools. And the funding that public schools get per student, in other words, if a student goes to a public school, that school gets uh, X number of more dollars, which was, I think, around five or $6,000. Anyways, yes. work out the math, multiply them all out. You're talking not $25 million coming out of Missouri, but about $700 million per year coming out to fund private schools. And do you think Missouri is going to be able to raise taxes for that extra $700 million? And eh, that ain't well, going to happen. <laughs> that won't happen with the current legislature in place. They think we, and Missouri is a low tax state. And if Republicans can continue to find out a way to decrease taxes, they will. Uh, recently, people are, are saying, hey, that's my tax dollars. I wanted to follow my child to education. Uh, my great example, years ago as a small business person, I used to pay a franchise fee of $49 every other year, Dan. The hardest part about paying the franchise fee was remembering what year I was in. So $49 every other year as a business owner. That collected Missouri $100, that $100 million. Wow. 
when we got rid of that franchise tax, mm-hmm. the, the rhetoric was, Deb, you know how to spend your money better than the state does. Well, right. yeah, for $49, you're right. I can spend that money better than the state of Missouri. But now when we talk about literally $100 million, no, the state of Missouri is going to spend that money better than I'm going to spend my $49. And if we put it towards the greater good of education and transportation and healthcare, I don't understand as a state why we don't want to take care of our people. Missouri is one of the highest poverty states in the nation. We are not investing in ourselves at all. And I think we're starting to see that on the national stage. Yeah. Well, education is one of those things that you don't get an immediate uh, payback on it, right? So you have to wait, you know, till the child, you know, goes through the whole education system, which is going to be uh, 15, 20 years or whatever, before you start seeing some of those results. And it's really hard to make people think about that. Hey, give us $49 every other year and we will turn out some really good students that may end up um, helping you in your business or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. You can't look at it from as a business owner. You, you can't look at it that forty nine dollars and say, um, yeah, you can spend it better than the state can. But can you spend a hundred million dollars better than the state can? I agree right. with that. Yeah, I had a funny little uh, anecdote right here. I said, you know, if you want if you want the money to follow the student, um, how about this? Let's have the money follow each soldier out there. So. You know, yeah. armies don't pay soldiers. We just pay the soldiers directly and see see where they right. want to go. See how well that works out. Yeah. Um, so speaking of money, I want to talk in our, in our last uh, subject right here was infrastructure. Uh, from what I understand, Missouri will receive, I think it was uh, almost $9 billion, 8.9, I think it yeah. was, uh, for yes. roads, bridges, broadband access, et cetera. And yet, you know, you have politicians, and I don't mind calling out the guy's name, Jason Smith, constantly complaining about it. He runs uh, the 8th District in Missouri, which is the most impoverished district in Missouri, 13th most impoverished in the nation. And he has most of the impoverished counties in his district, and yet he's complaining about this $8.9 billion. Now, the only legitimacy I can see in his complaint, he says, yeah, at some point we have to pay this. But yet... I think a whole lot more money is going to be coming into his district than than going out. And I think a whole lot more people would love to be mm-hmm. able to pay taxes, especially if they aren't working right now. Yeah, I'll take a job. And yeah, I'll pay taxes because I still have a job. So right. why do you think right. uh, why, why do you think people worry about this? Why do why do politicians complain about this eight point nine billion dollars? Because a lot of it's, you know, coming into Missouri to do some good things. I wish I knew that answer. I listened to a committee hearing today where a representative from the Kansas City area, Doug Ritchie, uh, talked about, well, maybe we don't need to spend all of the funds and maybe we can send it back to Missouri because, you know, I'm back to the U.S. government because I'm worried about the federal deficit. Well, one thing I'd like to tell him is he's elected to represent Missouri, not the federal government. And so I, for the life of me, have never been able to understand Jason Smith is a good point in question, why he would deny people in his district from the opportunity to have jobs, to better their infrastructure, to better their broadband, to protect their bridges, 
to move forward in the 21st century with electric charging stations for cars and to make sure children aren't drinking water from lead pipes. Yeah. I'm just a little confused on why we think tax cuts for the rich, which I believe under Trump added close to $8 trillion of debt, why now a $1.2 trillion tax incentive, I'll call it, an opportunity to create jobs and infrastructure across the nation. I I can't begin to understand why that's not a comparable or a very good investment in the people, not just in Missouri, but in the United States. Well, the only answer I can come up with is power. It goes back to that thing we talked about with power. It's it's this thing called socialism, right? So it, it's not that it is socialism at all, but if they can use the word socialism and if they can use the word eh, we're going to tax people more, it gets them more power, Um but, you know, at some point, you know, we're from Missouri, show me sort of thing. You know, people are going to start to wake up and realize, hey, why are our health clinics closing? We had one in, uh, I think it was Mountain View, Missouri, a free clinic, mm-hmm. which closed. Um, and most of the people there are going to have to move into Medicaid if they can, if they qualify. I was reading an article where some of the people were saying, I can't, I don't qualify for it. So what do I do? I'm kind of stuck right now. Right. Right. Um, these things are happening. And at some point, I would think that you begin to assess where you are and what your political representatives are doing and can mm-hmm. they do a better job. And you know, I, I, I don't want to completely trash Jason, uh, Jason Smith's arguments. I think he has some concerns there. But overall, I don't understand, um, given, the, given the, the benefits versus the cost, and particularly the fact that, you know, they're railing against the IRS having more power these days. But if you round up all the money that the billionaires are cheating the government over a 10 year period of right. time, it is uh, right. it actually exceeds the amount what they're putting into this infrastructure bill. So right. just get people to right. pay the money they owe and it's free. <laughs> right. I think I had heard the money that would support um, parental leave of two months was equitable. Oh my goodness, Dan, I, I'll forget, but it was equitable to a small tax increase for like the ultra rich in the country. Yeah. And that instead of taxing the ultra rich, it was 450 million. I, I want to tell you, I certainly could be mm-hmm. wrong with my numbers, but it was so comparable to providing parental leave uh, for our parents who have young children. Yeah. What were the only um nation in the world inside of the industrial nations that that doesn't provide that yeah and it is pretty tragic when it comes down to uh power who's in charge and how they want to keep it don't forget the point you brought in the radio stations across missouri and the and the country that just speak one side of the equation if that's all you hear then you take that as being true yeah and it is incumbent on the Democrats to start being able to carry our voices further and further into the rural areas in the state and across the nation so we can start competing with what the narrative is that's out there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very important. So let me ask you this. What's next for Deb Lavender? You've, you've, you were in the House of Representatives for 
uh, what, f- six years? Six years, yes. Yeah, and then you went for the the Senate position. The Senate position runs a term of six years, so you won't get another shot at that for uh, some time now. So what's next for Missouri, you? In Missouri, the Senate seats are four years. Oh, four years, So that okay. will be back up in 2024. Okay. Uh, Dan, you know, like everybody, I'm looking at how the new maps will be drawn. Mm-hmm. We're in the gerrymandering process after the census that's going on. And I thoroughly enjoyed the work I did in Jeff City. Uh, I really took a, a, a partial to the budget and feel that I still have some good budget information. We're in a time period where we have literally billions of dollars that have come to the state because of the CARES money that Trump passed because of the ARPA funds that Biden passed, because of the infrastructure bill that Biden passed. And I have great concern that we're going to spend that well for the state of Missouri. I'm going to look at the new maps and see if there's a House district that's appropriate for me to take another run at. And then I'll look at the state Senate seat that's not up until 2024 and see if that might be something that, that uh uh, shows an opportunity for me to get back into Jefferson City where I can serve the people. Yeah. And until then, we're, I'm doing what I can. I continue to send out a newsletter that I did throughout my term as state rep and try to keep people informed on what's going on and certainly keep up with uh, local people, the topics, the issues on what's happening in our state. Well, I'm glad you said that because you just saved me some dignity here because I was just going to get on my knees right here and, and beg you to uh, to get back into Jeff City because I think you did a well, great thank job you. there. And thank I, you. I really enjoy those newsletters too. They're uh, very informative. Um, they, you know, I, I hear about a lot of things on the news already, but it's something else to get these newsletters. I actually subscribe to newsletters from, you know, everybody across the political spectrum. Sam Graves up in the, I think, the, was it the 4th District? Even Jason Smith, I subscribed to his newsletter as well because I want to read, you know, what these what everybody's up to. And, and your newsletters are are the most informative, in my opinion. They're the most neutrally informative newsletters. Um, Thank you. I have a question for you, and uh, I I've been in communication with one of your volunteers, Lori White. I hope she doesn't mind uh. me saying her name on the air here, and she's introduced me to this concept of adopting a politician. Um, what's this concept all about? What, what, what's going on there? What we've done is attempting as people are running for office to see if we can adopt a person and help them with their uh, strategy, help them with their messaging and see if we can help them win their seat. And so it's as simple as, as finding somebody that you can support and going all in on them and help them in any way that you can to be successful in their run. That's great. Yeah, she's helping you out, I guess, with an Instagram account or something like that. Yes. Oh. Yep. She's been terrific. She is terrific and has produced some amazing results. Good. Good. Yeah, she's uh, quite a bit of uh, experience in marketing, so that uh, yes, that's something I could use as well. Um, so, what can people do? This is my call to action section right here. What can people do to make a more perfect union? Well, I think they can decide what's important to them. Is it public education? Is it healthcare? Is it infrastructure? Is it supporting the people you would like to see represent you? And spend some time every week doing that. Uh, There will be municipal elections in our area in April of this next year. 
I know for sure Kirkwood will have school board and city council elections. And then of course, a year from now, we'll have general elections. Every house in the Missouri House of Representatives is up. Half of our Senate seats are up. Every U.S. congressional seat is up next year. So find a candidate, find one that you support and call them up and ask them what you can do to help support them. Um, what, donating money is easy. It, it is very vital at this point in time. So certainly you can make donations, but there's an awful lot of other things that you can do to help support a campaign. Whether it's knocking on doors, making phone calls, um, assisting with anything else that the, the um, campaigns might need. So find something to do. Our, our democracy uh, requires that, I think, at this time. I heard a great quote from, is it um, Martin Luther King's wife? Is it Rosetta King? Said that every generation needs to preserve democracy. Yeah. And, and I think we got a little lax about that for quite a while. And now we're seeing how important it is that we do need to look at. If a legislation can come in and overturn a vote of the people, that's not democracy. Yeah. yeah. So for us to be able to preserve and protect our democracy, well, maybe we need to get a little bit more involved in preserving it again. So those are some of the things people can do. You know, something it just came to mind. I was having this conversation with my wife the other day, and she said, you know, how do you keep from getting so depressed, all these horrible things happening in politics and the, the tendency toward fascism and so on? And um, I, I told her, you know, it's politics is a process. It's not an end. You have to enjoy the process. And it it's never done. It's never done the way you want it done. It's only done the way collective people want it done. And nobody has the same opinion. In fact, even sing, every single person who will have an opinion that changes over time. So by definition, it's never done. You just have to enjoy the process. And I use that same concept at work, you know, try to attach myself to the participation and not to the outcome. And, um, and I think that, you know, with people out there, they get depressed over politics. I would just say, just look, this is, this is the way humans roll. This is the way it works with us. We're, they we're never going to have it a utopia. We're never going to have it our way. It's always going to be something that uh, has to be debated and talked about. And you have to enjoy that process. And I think you've definitely tuned into that with, uh, with your participation in Jefferson City there which is our state capital, by the way. Dan, I read a, yeah, I read a, a good book recently uh, called The Agitators about women from 1820 to 1870. Wickenden was the author, and it was women working on women's rights and the abolition of slavery from 1820 again to about 1870. One of the women in the book, Martha Coffin Wright, made a comment in one of her letters that I don't think I will see the end of this in my lifetime, but I don't want to be disheartening for the younger women below me. So I will continue to rally forward for women's equality because I know one day we'll get it. Yeah. She made that statement about 170 years before women got the right to vote. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, 70 years, right? 1830, 1840-ish, we got the vote in 19... 1919, I think. 1920, 
Yeah. So it was a long time before we had the right to vote. And I think it's exactly what we're both saying here. It's a process. We have to stay involved. We have to keep moving forward. Even when the days seem darkest are the days that we need to make sure we continue to move forward as best as we can. And if for nothing else, for the younger generation, you know, it's, um, yeah. I also told that to my wife, we, we both have children and uh, this is the world there that they are going to inherit. Um, I'm yes. not going to be around forever. Nobody's around forever, but uh, my time is shorter than our children's, obviously. And um, we have to make it good for them, make it safe, make it, a, make it, a, keep it a democracy. Good. Any yes. parting words of wisdom before we uh, call it? No, I think I shared them with you. And thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Great. Well, we've been talking with Deb Lavender, former member of the Missouri House of Representatives. Deb, uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And good luck and lots of lots of success in uh, whatever wherever your political ambition takes you. And I hope it takes you back to Jefferson City. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with the march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org slash contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you'd like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode. And happy Thanksgiving.